This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning. Let me ask you if you would take your Bibles and go to Nehemiah chapter 6, please. Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning. I hope that you uh, did enjoy the break and, uh, and you've bounced back from it because uh, the end draws near. And, and uh, amazingly, we are getting very close to the end of another semester. The older I get, the faster they come. So I can't imagine what it's like, Dr. Thompson. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, sorry. Cheap shot, cheap shot. All right. Uh, I said this, uh, Lord willing, this year in chapel, I was going to try and focus on leadership uh, issues, uh, aspects of that, as uh, really not just uh, positional leaders, that is, people who have a, an office, a title, a position, uh, but I, I, uh, I believe the pattern in Scripture is that uh, men are expected by God to be leaders uh, in the home, in the church, and I, I would think as well in, in the society. So I think there's uh, broader application than just what we're focusing on, but I'm obviously primarily uh, focused on and concerned about us as leaders in the church and and I would assume, by virtue of your studies, some aspect of aspiring to leadership uh, in a way that, that uh, would carry a mantle of responsibility in the church. And so uh, the first time I was in, we actually looked at uh, Proverbs on, uh, it sort of could be cliche-ish, but it didn't mean it in that way, leadership vision, right, that, that the the uh, prudent foresees the evil and passes by, the naive and goes on and is punished. So, so I tried to, to, to tease that out a little bit as the fact that we, if we're going to be prudent, we need to have the kind of vision that can not just foresee where there may be problems, but a part of the reason we're able to foresee that is because we actually have learned from our previous experience, that is hindsight, we learn from our experience, the experiences of other people, so that we, we don't think uh, the things we're facing are brand new, right? Usually they have some echo, at least, of previous problems that we've encountered, other people have encountered. Uh, history has examples of it, you know, and so we're trying to learn from it so that we can anticipate things in the future. And then an aspect of that is insight. That is, we have to actually be having the kind of discernment that, that is looking past the appearance of things and seeking to see really what's going on and, and understand it. Because if we're not thinking about it uh, at a deeper level, then, then we could easily get pulled right into something because we just didn't, we didn't think about it. We didn't see it. So... And I, and I think, um, you know, actually I, I was just in a meeting yesterday and I said, you know, hindsight is always better, right? You can look back and you can see what happened. Um, and, and, I, and I would even say, in, in the context of that meeting, I was saying, you know, I probably, uh, I probably wasn't seeing some things as clearly at the time they were happening that could have warned me <laughs> about what was coming. Right, and now I look back 
and I go, ah, I probably should have seen that, right? So nobody's going to be perfect in it, uh, but you know what? You know what it does now. It says to me, okay, so there's some things you need to watch for that you saw but didn't really give them the full weight that you should have, right? So that now, as you're making decisions going forward, you're actually taking that factor into consideration and thinking about it uh, so that you're, you're, you're having, um, you know, you, you're the best that you can. You're, you're uh, trying to anticipate the future in ways that avoid uh, unnecessary problems, right? Problems of your own making. Uh, so you're trying to look down the road and go, all right, I need to see that there's trouble ahead and, and operate in that. And I, and I think that's a, um, I mean, that's where accumulated experience does work to your advantage. But you know what the nice thing is? You can actually learn from other people's accumulated experience too. That's why we ask for advice. That's why we read history. That's why we try to understand things, you know, and, and, and work through it. I mean, there was many a time uh, in my early years, uh, particularly on the larger ecclesiastical realm, um, for which as a young man did not have some accumulated experience that I'd be picking up the phone, for instance, and calling Dr. McCune and saying, hey, you know, here's what's going on. Have you seen anything like that before? Help me understand the backstory, right? So that's just one example of there's something coming up and I could draw from the experience of somebody who's been down that path, right? And, and so, so part of what we should be doing as leaders is, is helping uh, cultivate the ability to have effective hindsight by not depending entirely on our own experience, uh, but learning, like Nehemiah doesn't, we're not going to look at it, but Nehemiah does later in the book, he actually uh, talks to the people of Israel about a future problem based on the past mistake of Solomon. Right? He says, don't you remember Solomon did this and what it produced? So why would we do this again? Right? That's what I'm talking about. Is he, he, was, uh, he wasn't just the child of his day. He understood that life Life had flowed into this, and, and it's, it's creating a stream, and, and you could see where that stream may be heading based on, on those kinds of issues. And, and lots of mistakes happen precisely because people don't lift their head up, <laughs> right? You ever walk into a wall? You ever, uh, or a pole, you, didn't, you know, you're looking down and whoosh. I remember one time riding my bike, and I was trying to put my, a newspaper in between the gear shift and the handlebars on the, on my 10 speed, and I went right into the back of the car, right? Because I had my head down, just <laughs> because I wasn't looking, right? I wasn't I wasn't anticipating, and lots of problems happen precisely for that. But anticipating also is accumulated experience of knowing where things go. So so that aspect of there's one part of of leadership. Uh, in terms of our, again, just playing on the image of sight, right? Foresight, hindsight, insight, right? One in chapter 6 here that I think actually it, it doesn't have a sight in it, right? 
but it, it, what I would put it under is the label focus. As a leader, Nehemiah is a good illustration in his handling the situations here in chapter 6 of the focus of a leader in order to accomplish the task that has been given to him by God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to read uh, through a decent portion of the chapter so that, so that we can then walk through it and, and uh, seek to understand what, what's going on here. Verse 1, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, to Abai and to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Chephirim in the plain of Ono, but they were, uh, they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You, are, you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will re- be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him, saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shimeiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like I, uh, like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because of Tobiah and because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sambalat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elo in 52 days. Now stop right there. So... uh, you know, if you've had me heard me say this in class, one of the things that I think is a danger of the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah could become uh, the launching pad to incorporate whatever management theories people have found in Peter Drucker or whatever. Uh, and so, so uh, I, and I do really think that is a danger, right? But I think in this narrative, uh, the, the 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 focal point on it is. Uh, Nehemiah not being distracted away from the work which he was engaged in. And, and the work had come to a critical point. If you look at verse 1, 
Uh, he says he had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors of the gate, in the gate. So that probably is why he's coming under this, uh, this sort of intense and aggressive attack at this point, because once those gates were in place, then you have a very secure wall and, and perimeter for the city. But having the wall done without the gates in it leaves obviously a lot of open activities. So it really was sort of at a pivotal moment in the project that Nehemiah was engaged in, and, and it was precisely at that that his enemies begin these attacks to try and frighten them away. You saw that two times, at least in the text, right? To frighten us so that we wouldn't finish the work. And so it really was a challenge to Nehemiah about whether or not he would complete the task that in his mind he had come back to do for the Lord and to some, in some sense felt, I think, an obligation before the Lord. Because he says in chapter 2 and verse 12, neither told I anyone what God had put it in my heart to do for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah believed that he was there uh, in a sense by divine appointment. God had placed him in the right place and, and, and opened up the door for him to do this, and so he had come back to Jerusalem to do this very specific thing, and now he's sort of like at the 11th hour, and he's facing these attacks to try and get him to not do it, right? To, to, to be frightened away from the work, to be discouraged in the work, to, to not, uh, not accomplish it. And so, so that, that sort of teed up in verse 1, that he's almost done, here come these attacks, and, and he resists all of them, verse 15, then you have, you have basically the culmination of it. So the wall was completed. And, and the response of the enemies, you know, that they heard it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So, so I actually think this narrative uh, is, uh, is built around whether Nehemiah would complete the task that he perceived to be what God wanted him to do, right? He, he had a responsibility that he felt a burden for and had mobilized people, secured resources, mobilized people to pursue it, and now it's facing a critical juncture of, of opposition. And... and uh, I can't say that Nehemiah 6 is intended to be uh, here so that every leader knows at some critical juncture of their ministry they're going to face attacks and they need to be ready to handle those, right? I don't think uh, that that's where I would sort of stop in the argument of it, that I don't know that Nehemiah 6 was written for us as primary intention to show that that this is what you will face and here's how you should face it. I think its primary intention is to show us God's faithfulness in providing a leader and bringing the work to completion. But the means that God uses to do that on a human plane is a focused leader. Someone who stays focused on the task that he has, rather than allowing himself to be drawn away from it. And, and, and when I say not distracted, uh, or not drawn away from it, or not 
frightened off of it, uh, I, th I think it is particularly in light of, of attacks against us. Right? So, so we need to be focused so we're not distracted to things that are meaningless. Right? I mean, let's, can we just all start that that's sort of a given? We're not supposed to fritter away our lives doing things that really are insignificant. That's not the point I'm saying here. How do you stay focused when you're under attack? Right? When you meet opposition in doing what you believe God wants you to do, how do you stay focused? How do you, how do you keep on doing the right thing and not end up uh, allowing uh, the enemy and your enemies to set the work of God back? Because right? that's, that's what Nehemiah is faced with here. If he surrenders to what's going on, then the work doesn't get done. So, so he, in I think, an act of commitment to God and somewhat uh, a selfless approach, refuses to get drawn into it. Right? He he refuses to allow them to pull him off point, if I could put it in that way. And I see three types of things that that could do that. The first in verses two through four are are uh, the challenge of distractions in the sense of that they were trying to draw him away from the work, right? You see the invitation in chapter 2 formally stated, and and then in verse 4 it says, he said four more times, right? So they keep coming and saying, hey, you know, can you come to the, the council meeting? You know, we, we, we want to we sit down and talk with you. Would you come and do that? And they basically were just trying to get him away from the work. If they could put a stop to the work, uh, it would be frustrating to the people because everybody's lives, if you understand what's going on in the book of Nehemiah, everybody's lives is not only dependent on this getting done, it's extraordinarily disrupted by the fact that it's happening. Right? I mean, their, their whole lives are actually being consumed by this project, and the longer it drags on, the more likely it is to dishearten the people. So they start at that sort of low level of, a, let's just get him away, and, and actually that will hinder the work, and if he actually gives to it, we could, we could harm him. We could, we could do what we want because we can't get to him where he is. Remember the whole point of the sword and trowel from Spurgeon? That's what's going on, right? They're, they're working and protecting so, so they're prepared for attack, so let's get him out so that we can hinder the work on it. And, and uh, I mean, hopefully no one's actually trying to kill you. Okay? I mean, I would think that wouldn't be a good thing. Um, but I do think uh, in, in many ways people who are resisting the work that's being done uh, will and can pursue so with just this kind of nagging attempt to draw you away from it, right? Because if you spend your time focused away from it, you are not able to do the work, and, and I think potentially uh, they're not doing it for your good, but to some degree they're doing it for your harm, right? If we can hinder the success of what's going on, it, it can be a harm to the person who's responsible on a human plane for it. 
And I think I think what's fascinating is Nehemiah just, I mean, he just bluntly says in verse 3, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to it? Right? So he doesn't say, he doesn't throw a counter accusation at them. Right? I know what you're really trying to do. <laughs> I, know what, I know what's going on here. He just says, the work that we're doing is important. Right? And some have taken that phrase in sort of like a, you know, a puff piece. Hey, I'm doing a great work. You know, don't mess with me. Don't bother me. That's not what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, this is important work. This is significant work. Why should it stop so that I just come talk to you? Because he, he is clearly, I think by implication, saying, you are not important work. Right? Coming to meet with you is not on my priority list. This is the thing that needs to be done. Why should it stop while I'm doing this? And, and um, can, I mean, I, I, think, I think at times uh, you have to accept the premise that uh, you're not going to make everybody happy. And if you can't live with the fact that some people who would want to get your attention off of the main thing and, and they're going to persistently try and draw you away from that for something that is not important and you don't yield to it and they're not going to be happy about it, if you can't live with that, you might want to think about a different calling. Right? Because there's probably fewer places where people's expectations for what you ought to do dominates, right? Most people, and, I, and don't, don't think I'm drawing a perfect analogy here, all right, or comparison. Most people don't sit around thinking that the CEO of Ford should be stopping by to see them. Or that if they send them an email, they expect a personal response to that email. Right? They, they don't. They, in, in just about every other area, they think the person who's got the full responsibility for what's going on ultimately, like the buck stops there, that, that they have a tendency to go, uh, yeah, I, I understand that. You come to the church, though, and everybody, everybody can think that the pastor ought to immediately respond to whatever concern is expressed to them. And, and the reality of it is, is that that's just not possible, <laughs> right? I mean, just on a, on a real word plane, unless, you know, unless you got a house church, um, and then they're still probably not going to be happy, right? You just can't do it. And, and, and here's the thing that's the, the downside potentially for some guys is that they're actually, because of their very heart to minister, they really want to be there and handle every one of those things. And, and, and what ends up happening is um, something is going to suffer. Often it's your personal life and your walk with the Lord and your marriage and your family. Very often, it is actually the health of the church 
as congregation, right? And and it's because uh, because the 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 nasty, dangerous thing in it is is that this is probably more the reflection of American individualism that would think the church exists for me rather than I exist for the church, right? Because Jesus didn't start the church for the sake of all the individuals. He redeemed individuals to incorporate them into the church to accomplish his mission, right? So they actually have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And and chapter 4 talks about that being done in the context of the body. But we have a tendency to think that all of these things exist for us and therefore they should be responsive ultimately to our needs. And then we carry that, you know, we carry it more like the, it's more like the uh, restaurant small shop analogy. Not happy with the service, I want to talk to the manager. Right? I want to talk to, I want to talk to somebody who can do something about this. And, and so they carry that mindset in and potentially uh, end up uh, draining the work of its focus and the leadership of its focus. And you can't, um, you know, you, you and, and I, say, I, mean, I, I, I could probably give tons of illustrations, right? Because, I mean, here's what I would say is a common thing. I mean, just two weeks ago, I was out doing a pastor's thing, and, and it, a lot of it was about conflict and working guys through conflict. And we're all sitting around the table. And you know what? The, the unifying thing, and maybe it's, it may be confirmation bias, right? So I'll admit that. It may be just I, I'm hearing what I want to hear, right? But almost inevitably, the guys who are in conflict, from their side of the conflict, it really, I think, was driven by they were hurt or upset that this person might think something bad about them. And that was driving the conflict. They cared so much about what this person thinks about them that that it just, it's a burr. And it lets them get sideways. And, and, And the reality of it is if they actually, if they actually uh, had the focus that Nehemiah was having here, uh, then, then it wouldn't have become a personal issue for them. Right? They would have said uh, in their heart, now, and, and don't hear me saying you don't ever help or deal with it. I'm, I'm just saying that, that a part of what we have to do is be able to navigate and think through when is it a just a distraction intended to to sideline the work? And when is it actually a part of the work? <laughs> right? And and I can't give you an infallible little rubric to figure that out. But the reality of it is is that we we've got to be careful because there I mean one you'll you know you hurt yourself and you'll pretty much believe you'll kill the next guy right because he'll come in thinking he's going to go do this and he's got to live up to the standard of somebody who ran around putting out fires and keeping plates spinning and and it'll just kill him right and and the reality of it is is that the that the goal would be 
uh, practically, and this isn't what in this passage today, but it would be to say, you know, why don't you come get in the work, <laughs> right? Why don't you why don't you get into the work, and 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 we'll we'll move forward instead of just always getting drawn off into eddies in the side that stop the flow of it, and and those things wear a person out and derail the work of God. When that doesn't work, then they step it up a little bit in verses 5 and following, and they go to uh, really an attack of, of, of lies against him, distortions. And this, uh, you know, this pat- verse 5 has always made me nervous about the whole open letter genre. <laughs> you know, I mean, I suppose there is a place for them, but, but the one that we see here is not exactly like, hey, here's what you should do when you have a problem with somebody, write an open letter. You know, and because what they're trying to do that is is a is a it's really a, a form of manipulation that's going on, right? They're writing this letter to everybody, saying things about Nehemiah that weren't true as a pressure tactic to get Nehemiah to do what they wanted. So so it wasn't coming just like the first set wasn't coming from a good motive. This is clearly not operating from a good motive. They're, they're approaching it from the standpoint of spreading false information and baseless accusations against him in order to get him to bend to what he wants. And this is perhaps why uh, a little bit of what I see in the first part of the chapter in here is they're, they're, the effectiveness of their attack and actually, ultimately, their ineffectiveness of it. But the only way it would have worked would be if Nehemiah was more concerned about his reputation than the work, right? That's that's why this would have worked. You know, hey, Nehemiah, we know you're trying to set up a kingdom. You've hired prophets. You're having them go around saying you're the king because when you finish the wall, you're all of a sudden going to pop up and say, now I'm king. And if Nehemiah let that false accusation uh, dominate his thinking, then he'd be sucked out into a fight, right? He he actually would be, uh, in a sense, uh, he would become he would become uh, you know frozen by it in his leadership, right? Verse nine says all of them were trying to frighten us. They will become discouraged. So, so it could have had the effect on Nehemiah that he finally caved into their wishes and went out to meet them, which wouldn't have been a good move. Or that he might, and I think implied in verse 9, is that, that they might actually say, you know, we better stop what we're doing because people are thinking the wrong thing about it. Right? I mean, hey, we, if we keep going on this, everyone's saying we're trying to set up a rival kingdom and we're in rebellion. So we better sort of back off. Let's let's not you know let's not keep going, right? Let's let's sort of back away from what we're doing. In other words, letting the popular, in this case, a false accusation that potentially influences the popular opinion around to become normative and controlling instead of what actually was happening. And Nehemiah's answer isn't to you know. Take out a uh, you know a rejoinder open letter. He simply says, verse eight, 
Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind, right? So he, he gives a blunt and direct rebuttal of it, uh, saying essentially that it's baseless, right? That's what it's in your own mind. There are no facts to prove what you're saying. There's no evidence of it. He just declares it to be wrong. Look at the end of verse 9. He prays, God, strengthen my hands, and, and he keeps on going, right? So, so he, he doesn't allow it to have the impact on him that they want it to have. He prayed and pressed on. And again, I'd say, I think one of the things that you have to get used to in any kind of a leadership position is that there will be times at which you you will be misrepresented, your motives will be misrepresented, um, and it, and and you just have to. I mean, I I would say, don't think you're ever flawless, right? So, so it is helpful when someone makes an accusation to do a self check to make sure it's not true, right? Uh, and if you're not sure if it's not true, to get some people to speak into you to say, hey, is this, you know, is this case? In this case, Nehemiah isn't dismissing it as not possible. He's dismissing it as not accurate. I mean, you understand the difference between the two, right? It is possible that he could have hired prophets. It is possible he could have been trying to set up a kingdom, but it's not accurate, right? So if somebody is accusing you of something, it, 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 the issue is, is it accurate or not? And if you're not sure, then you may need to have people speak into you and say, hey, did I, did I act rudely in that case? Or did I fail to do something I was supposed to do? Or did I misstate something? I mean, I, I'm not in any way arguing against us having humility. What I'm arguing against is insecurity. And those are not the same things. To be humble is not the same as being insecure. Insecure is, oh no, <laughs> they're saying stuff about me, and and having it, uh, having it affect your heart, right? You become discouraged and frightened about what people are saying about you, right? And and the reason I say we can't let that happen is because it it, it is reflective of um, at least two root issues that I think are bad, right? In in Paul, t- Paul says in Galatians 1, if I seek to please men, then I'm not the servant of Christ. So if he's going to back down from doing what he knows to be right because he's trying to please some people that are displeased, he's actually saying they're in charge. Right? And you can't do that. Okay, You can't be the servant of men and the servant of Christ. You have to make a choice. And the other is that Jesus tells us how to respond when people speak evil of us for his namesake, right? He says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So it shouldn't actually be the kind of thing that frightens us and discourages us from the work, ultimately, if we're seeing things correctly eternally, right? It, it shouldn't be the kind of thing that debilitates has a debilitating effect on us, it actually should drive us to a position of trusting God. All right, Lord, 
you know, as much as I know my heart, I, I think they're wrong on this. They're not. They're they're attacking me falsely for your name's sake, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna trust you in this. That this has this has some purpose, this has some reward, and and I'm gonna just keep doing what you said to do, Lord. I'm gonna keep doing what you said to do. I'm not gonna cave into it, Lord. Strengthen my hands, and and you can get the weirdest things. I mean, it's just crazy what people will believe. You know, I mean, it shouldn't be. You know, we see it now almost 24-7 that people, you know, someone, someone, uh, you know, I mean, just like window on it, someone uh, tweets out an accusation that is completely false and it, you know, receives a thousand likes. (laughs) Two hours later, they, they send out another tweet that says, hey, I was wrong about that. And like 30 people like it. Right, so the lie becomes gigantic. The correction, almost nobody, nobody wants to bother. No, no, no. Loads of retweets for the accusation, hardly any for the correction. Because there's something in the heart of sinful men that actually takes pleasure in the destruction of other people. Right, it, it's a heart full of envy and jealousy. And, and it loves to see other people uh, get knocked down a peg. It actually, if love doesn't believe all things and, and depravity is the opposite of love, what's the in, implication is that the heart that's not full of love loves to believe the bad things. I mean, it, it loves to hear about the, the gossip and the juiciness and, and that. So, so we're, we're, serve, we're sinners and we serve among sinners it shouldn't surprise us at times that people, people uh, are prone to accept as true things that are not and pass it along. And sometimes you're the... I mean, I've had, I mean it's just like bizarre at times. I remember years ago preaching at a conference and I was asked a question and I answered it, no. And some guy who was there showed up at the Pillsbury... Baptist Bible College board meeting uh, trying to get the invitation for me to be the graduation speaker pulled on the premise that I had said yes. I mean, and I start getting these phone calls, right? And I'm like, I'm like, well, hang on a second. I was asked that question and I said, no, I don't believe that. Well, it was said in the board meeting, you said you did. And I'm like, go, go to listen to the tape. And then I see the guy that's saying it at another conference, and I say, "Hey, I, I hear you got some, you got a problem with me. You, you, can we can we talk?" He says, "Well, I, I don't have a problem. I never said anything about you." He lies right to my face. Or else, the three people that called me, including the president of the college, were lying to me, telling me he did it. But you know what? The time between I heard about it and when I saw him was probably a year and a half before we saw him. Because I was like, I'm not going to go chase this guy around. He's going to answer to Jesus for that. Right? At the end of the day, what, what's the point of it? I mean, I could, I, could, I could probably spend a lot of time out there answering that kind of stuff. Because there's lots of gash moves. Right? But it doesn't help the work of God. And at the end of the day, we who believe in the sovereignty of God... 
and his righteousness can leave our case with him, just like our Lord did, right? He didn't revile, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously, right? We, we leave it in his hands and stay focused on the thing he gave us to do. The last thing is a deception that takes place, and I'll just point it out. It's it, from 10 uh, and following. A person who appears to have been presenting himself as a friend of Nehemiah uh, actually tries to sucker Nehemiah into taking a step that either would have brought physical harm on himself or certainly would have harmed his reputation. When I say the physical harm, because potentially in, in verse 11 where the second question, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life, it, you might have a, a footnote that says, uh, and live. Because there's, there's at least uh, a possibility here that he's not just talking about like in the temple precincts, but actually going into the temple, remember like Hezekiah did, and actually transcending a boundary that he should not. He's not a priest. Right, So he shouldn't go into there and could actually come under the judgment of God. All right? But at the very, so that's the more, the, you know, like the high level of what could be the problem. The low level clearly seems to be that, that it would have been a violation of, of what would have been right and respectable and would have brought dishonor on him because he had elevated his life above what was right to do. Right, so, so they were doing it, verse 13 says, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. So, so here's a scenario in which uh, the deception was trying to draw Nehemiah into doing something that would look, at least at the low level, would least look bad on him. Right? So they could say, look what Nehemiah did. He's not the man of integrity that you think he is. He's not the, the man that, that he claims to be. And, and so they could draw him into it in order to, to discredit him in some way. And potentially, I think, uh, put him in harm's way in terms of his, you know, uh, Hezekiah walked out with leprosy, right? I mean, because he, he, he violated uh, what what God's boundary was in that case. So, so, so here, and here again, I think is where, uh, I mean, I just heard one the last couple of weeks. I mean, um, guy, you know, one year away from retirement, pastoring a church for over 20 some years, and he got a couple of deacons that were sideways to him. And I'm, I'm going secondhand, so, and I'm not telling you who it is, so think hypothetically hypothetically all right uh, apparently they got sideways started doing like a survey in the congregation of who thinks the pastor should actually leave now kind of a thing so they were you know trying to run a coup and and then because they were doing what's wrong he dropped down into the game and did some things that were inappropriate in in defense of himself and and trying to win the fight. And the net result is they got what they wanted because he lost the pastorate. Because he had now done something that discredited him with the rest of the congregation, or at least a significant portion of the congregation, right? And so what happened is the attack 
provoked uh, him and he gave into his baser side, right? And and the result was out of self-protection, self-preservation, he actually did things that, that harmed his ministry. And Nehemiah is a good example here of someone who's saying his life is under threat right now. And if you don't do something about this, you're going to get hurt by it. And the only option they're giving you is to do something that's going to harm your ministry. And that's what happened to him. And Nehemiah, in this case, perceived that that was what was going on. He started to put two and two together. And he said, you know what? They're not doing this for my good. So I'm not, I'm not going to... I'm not going to pursue this. I'm not going to do that. And he was protected in that regard. And if he would have died, because there was actually an attack, he would have died with his integrity, which is better than staying alive without it. Right? So so he wouldn't compromise in that regard. So, so distractions, distortions, deceptions... Uh, I hope you don't face many of these things. My guess is if you're alive long enough and are actually trying to do something for the Lord, you will face to some degree those things. Hopefully not massive degree, but to some degree, you'll have people trying to get you off target. You'll have people saying things about you that aren't true in order to influence your activity. Right? They're using it to try and manipulate you or potentially draw you into something that, that would discredit you. Okay? And, 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 uh, and the answer for Nehemiah was that, that he, he actually operated with a consistent focus. His intensity on the work, his integrity in his life, and his insight as he thought about these situations kept him from from getting drawn away. And so, so cultivate, by God's grace, the kind of uh, heart that is depending on Him. That's why he prays uh, twice for strength from God, help from God, and, and in fact for God to take care of His enemies because He wasn't going to do it. Lord, You remember what they're doing and, and, and stay focused on. Don't let struggle and opposition sidetrack you. As Paul would say, don't become weary in doing well. Don't get sucked into squabbles that are designed to dis- derail and destroy the work. Uh, don't you know? My, the older I get, the more uh, the more amazed and thankful I am uh, for my predecessor. Because things that he said when I was a young man that I wasn't completely sure were right. Many of those have proven to be very valuable, and particularly on this kind of a thing, because he faced his share of attacks, and he didn't strike back. He didn't let the church become full of the foment of it. He he kept focused on what God had put it in his heart to do, and and so let me urge you to start to get a clarity about that and a focus on that. So that you can you can navigate whatever comes by God's grace, staying on point, because one day you're going to answer to Jesus, not for settling every little squabble, but for being a steward of what He entrusted you to do. Let's pray.
Lord, please help us to, to think through things carefully and, and help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be more concerned about uh, your will as revealed in the scripture and, and as we've wrestled through uh, the desires that you've placed in us and the gifts you've given us that, that we might stay focused and, and accomplish uh, what you have for us to do in our lives and your purpose for us in this generation. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.